Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Wise Athletes Podcast, where we invite you to join our journey to understand how older athletes can achieve high performance and longevity in athletics. I am Joe Lavelle with Dr. Glenn Winkle, and this is episode 11 of our podcast. This is part two of a two-part podcast with Dr. Glenn Winkle about his personal journey with AFib. If you haven't listened to part one, I recommend you do that first to get the whole story. When Glenn discovered he had AFib, he went deep into the science to uncover solutions that have worked for him to retain his ability to be an endurance athlete well into his sixth decade, and he's not done yet. In part one, we discussed what is atrial fibrillation and why ignoring AFib is a bad strategy, what may have caused and worsened Glenn's AFib as an endurance athlete, and what were some of the triggers for Glenn's AFib episodes. In this episode, in part two, we will discuss over-the-counter supplements that have helped Glenn to reduce the occurrence and severity of AFib episodes, more of Glenn's AFib triggers, Glenn's symptoms of AFib in exercise and during rest, what Glenn would have done differently if he could have had a do-over, and what were Glenn's medical treatments, some that helped and some that didn't. This information is not offered as medical advice as we are not medical practitioners, but as always, Glenn and I hope you find this information helpful in your quest to become a wise athlete. And we'll pick up here where we left off at the end of episode one. We talked about caffeine as being one of the obvious things. I mean, that was my experience. But are there other supplements or um, vitamins or minerals that you could have too much of or too little of that have an effect on this? Indeed, yes. And I think this is a this is a good thing to, to bring out, to address, because way back when I first learned about AFib, we know that calcium is a very important mineral. And we also know that athletes tend to be low in calcium because we, we excrete it when we're sweating. We lose calcium by sweating. And so, of course, this is kind of funny in a way. It's almost stupid, but I'm a scientist. I'm a, I'm a medical person. I understand these things. So I started taking calcium supplements, figuring, well, that'll probably help the AFib. Well, ironically, it got worse. In fact, I'll never forget, I went to Whole Foods and I bought a new calcium supplement that you could drink because I didn't like taking pills. I take a lot of supplements. And I just One more pill was just too much. And calcium pills are large and they're, they're, they're kind of unwieldy and they, they don't taste very good. So I thought, I'll drink my calcium. They had this really good tasting flavored calcium supplement. And I was like, this is delicious. I drink it like a drink. Yeah. And I went into a, what I call persistent bout of AFib. It literally lasted for like 24 hours. Oh my. It was just nonstop AFib. And I was like, this is kind of, I remember I even returned the product. I said, this stuff's dangerous. This is a calcium supplement. I identified a principle about calcium and atrial fibrillation. And the principle is that calcium makes AFib worse. Now, there's a secret inside there. The flip side of that coin is that magnesium makes it better. And I knew this, I figured this out because if a person comes into the hospital in, in an episode of AFib, one of the medical solutions is to inject IV magnesium into, the, you know, into an IV, and that stops the AFib almost immediately. And so being the science that I am, I thought, well, I wonder if it worked with a supplement. So, of course, I went out and bought some magnesium supplements and started taking magnesium supplements. And I tell this story because there are others in this podcast that will do the exact same things, and this is what's going to happen. Magnesium is a laxative. So what happened was <laughs> I discovered that I was spending a lot of time in the bathroom because <laughs> it's, it's a very potent laxative. While it does help the heart, if you have to go to the bathroom you know, many times in the day because your diarrhea is, I would call the term explosive, let's just say it doesn't work very well. So I finally went out and I found a magnesium supplement that doesn't cause diarrhea. Let's put it that way. 
And I've been using it ever since. It's now been, oh gosh, we're talking 12, 14 years I've been using the same supplement and it doesn't cause diarrhea. So it's a magnesium supplement that's chelated and it has some potassium in it and it makes a difference. So I can't take calcium supplements anymore. I can still drink milk and drink dietary foods containing calcium, but I take a magnesium supplement in a fairly high dose that doesn't cause diarrhea or loose stools, for example. Okay. So minerals are important. I also discovered that there's another mineral that's very effective also, and it happens to be zinc. So low zinc levels, high calcium levels, and no, low magnesium levels can cause problems down the road. So I tell people, make sure you have it, you have zinc in a supplement in your supplements. Make sure you don't take calcium supplements and you take a fairly high dose magnesium supplement. That will help with some of the AFib symptoms. Good to know. So are there uh, any other triggers? Yes, in fact, there was another trigger. And this trigger is a little bit different, but it goes into a perhaps one of the reasons why a majority of people, 25% of the population, as they get older, are developing atrial fibrillation. It's well known now, and that this is particularly important right now with coronavirus. A lot of people have heard the term cytokine storm, post-corona inflammatory syndrome. You're seeing this in kids and everything else. And so you're hearing the word inflammation over and over and over again with regards to coronavirus. And that's very important because inflammation is managed by the immune system. And if you understand this, in fact, I make it a point when, I, when, when a young person dies of the coronavirus, I ask the question, was inflammation a component? And I would say in 90% of the cases, it's an issue. So there are several things, and this is a whole other talk that we could spend hours on talking about inflammation. I have several seminars on the topic itself, just inflammation by itself. The key thing is the American diet, standard American diet, which is sad. Okay, you have time to get the pun. Yeah. So basically, this, the standard American diet, the sad diet, is inflammatory. And so if you have children that are eating the standard American diet, they're at risk for a late onset or a late symptom COVID type type things, uh, the inflammation type syndrome. People who are overweight have high inflammatory score. It so happens that in atrial fibrillation, a high inflammatory score predisposes you to AFib. Now, there's a funny little thing that happened when I, was, when I had my AFib and I was working with Dr. Christopher Cole at Penrose. We had a, um, a high sensitivity CRP test done on me to see if I had inflammatory score. And it came in at 0.72. And he goes, oh, you're fine. Because see, in the, in the cardiovascular world, it's believed that if you're below 1.0, you're fine. Okay. But I knew from the research I had done that the number, the actual number for AFib was 0.65. And what it turns out that your AFib score, I mean, if your inflammatory score, your CRP score was 0.65 or below, your AFib would not progress. If it was above 0.65, it would get worse over time. And mine was 0.72. So I remember taking the paper to Dr. Cole and said, you got to read this because he said, I'm fine. I said, no, I'm not fine at all. I got to lower my score. And that meant dietary changes, supplement changes, things to lower my inflammatory score. And also behaviors that increase your score. For example, caffeine can raise your CRP score as an inflammatory component. High blood pressure can do that. Blood sugar levels can do that. Obesity can do it. All these different things can raise your inflammatory score. So it's quite low because the average population is way above one. They're in the 3.5 to 4.0 range. A lower inflammatory score is going to be helpful and will allow your AFib not to progress. So that's a, that's a dietary changes, lifestyle changes, things of that sort. Well, and a low inflammation diet is something that we all aspire to in any case, if we're smart. Uh, you had said earlier that uh, people with cardiovascular disease and diabetes and overweight, these are the people where AFib strikes. So it makes sense that inflammation is central to that. Uh, but here's the, here's, the, here's the rub right here. 
exercise is inflammatory. This is the key. And it's one of the reasons I believe that endurance athletes are at higher risk for AFib because when we exercise, we create inflammation in the body. But is it chronic? Chronic inflammation, uh huh. I mean, obviously it's acute. Um, yeah. But if you recover, does the inflammation diminish when you've recovered? In some people, it does. That's the, that's the key. This is where nutrition and diet are so important for athletes, where recovery is so important. For example, we talked about recovery in one of our earlier podcasts and the idea of how important recovery was that if an athlete were to work out and trigger inflammatory response and work out again and trigger an inflammatory response and work, and basically what you're doing, you're, you're loading inflammation on top of inflammation on top of inflammation. The recovery process, part of that, the trigger actually to stimulate recovery is the inflammation itself and the actual recovery process lowers the inflammatory score. But in many individuals who have other predisposing factors, the, infl the inflammation doesn't go down and the immune system stays elevated and they put themselves at higher risk. One of my beliefs is that the athlete who works out too much and doesn't allow time for recovery puts themselves at greater risk for cardiovascular disease. This is the irony of exercise. Exercise is good for you. Yes, it is. But overexercising is not good for you. And if not paying attention to recovery and all these things, this is the whole the whole point of wise athletes, that let's be smart about, if you, if you want to use our exercise to make us healthier, let's pay attention to these things. Let's be smart. Let's allow proper time for recovery. Um, let's look at things like our inflammatory score, vitamins and supplements and minerals to lower that score. Designing our workouts so we don't totally stress the body so we can't recover from exercise and our score is not elevated. So this is part of being a wise athlete. Yeah. For all of us, making sure that we're allowing, after exercising, we're allowing our bodies to recover, but yet still some athletes, for whatever reason, their inflammatory status stays high and they're just going to be at higher risk of AFib. Well, like I said, the standard American diet is inflammatory. And if an athlete is eating the standard American diet, they're going to have a greater risk of maintaining their inflammatory score post-exercise. They won't recover well. So it's all part of the same picture, essentially. But if you can change your diet to a much healthier diet that's less inflammatory, then your recovery from exercise will be better. Right. And your risk of AFib will be better, too, or reduced. Okay, well, that, that's helpful. That gives me some more reason to work on uh, being better at recovery, notably um, figuring out my sleep problems. Yeah, in fact, two things you mentioned. I just saw this one thing. I was working with a friend of mine I haven't talked to in a while, and he described him and his, his wife as carbo pigs. They like carbohydrates. And I'll be honest, I mean, back in the day, I was huge on carbohydrates. I mean, I remember carbo loading before big bike races. Not that it did me any good, but I would do it nonetheless. I thought that was what you're supposed to do. Well, now being much wiser and older and smarter, hopefully, um, and we had the podcast about the keto diet, but carbohydrates are inflammatory over other diets. And you mentioned the idea of sleep, not getting good sleep creates a higher inflammatory score. Those people that work are night shift workers have higher CRP scores than day shift workers. Changing your, your circadian rhythms is inflammatory. So you can start identifying from the athlete point of view and also from the cardiovascular point of view, lifestyles and inflammatory lifestyle will increase risk and anti-inflammatory lifestyle will decrease risk and increase athletic performance. All right, Glenn. Well, uh, if there aren't any other triggers that you want to tell us about, what are the symptoms of AFib? And what did you experience when you were first, you know, before you knew you had it, but you knew something was off? Well, 
it's a, that's a really good question because back when it first happened, I didn't know what was going on. And it, it was the early season. I was doing a, a senior one, two points race at the velodrome. It was back in 2004. I had bridged across to a breakaway. Nothing new. So I got from the main pack up the road and I'm with the brake and I couldn't stay with them. I was just like, I'd gotten across okay, but I was like, <gasps> I was gasping for breath. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm just out of shape. That's a common, it was early, it was like early spring. I hadn't done many velodrome races. I wasn't used to high intensity efforts yet. And so it makes sense that I would have been tired from bridging across to a breakaway. But then something happened that was like, whoa, I'm really out of shape. So of course I didn't make the breakaway. The pack caught me and I couldn't stay with the pack. That's never happened before. If I bridge up to breakaway, yeah, fine. Okay, I didn't make the break, but I couldn't stay with the field anymore. I got dropped by the field. And I thought, wow, I'm really out of shape. <laughs> that was my thought, literally. What had happened was my heart wasn't functioning properly. I didn't realize it, but something was off. And in fact, it wasn't until, I think it was about three months later when I nearly died, because um, I kept racing with the AFib, not really, just kind of ignoring it, like most of us do. We ignore symptoms. Oh, it's, it'll go away if I just ignore it. But it's, I wasn't paying attention, and net result, I nearly died. Um, and that's when I saw a cardiologist. Nearly died because you nearly crashed in a race? Or? Oh, no, no, no. It was much worse than that. I raced, the, it was July 4th, and I did the, um, the Grand Prix, which was, uh, we had athletes from all over the world there. These are the best in the world. And I was racing against the best in the world, literally. And I, at that time, I was, what, in my 40s, maybe late 40s? So I was pushed my body to extremes. And I remember after one of the races, I was laying on the tarmac and I couldn't get up. I literally could not sit up. I was so weak. Uh, I was obviously I was tired. I pushed my body to extremes, but it was beyond that. It was like I literally felt like I was dying. And it took me about, I'm not kidding, five hours before I could actually get up off the velodrome floor. And I walked out to my car and I was seeing a friend of mine and I was talking to her and I just blacked out. And for some point in time, all I remember was not being in my body anymore. I wasn't there. And uh, she even said to me, she goes, should I call 911? Because she thought I died. <laughs> of course, you don't ask a dead person to call 911. You just call 911. But anyway, she didn't call 911. I came around and I realized, wow, that was quite an experience. Um, that's, that was that day I said, I got to see a doctor. Something, this is not right. You don't normally black out and have out-of-body experiences. Five hours after racing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Five hours after racing. Um, this The key thing is that for our listening audience, don't be as stupid as I was and not call. In fact, this would happen to my mom. It's so funny. It's so funny. But she'd call me up and she'd say to me, I think I'm having a heart attack. What do I do? I says, call 911. Well, I don't want to call them. I don't want to bother them. I go, mom, that's why they're there. <laughs> so she's like me. I can understand why I did what she did because I didn't call it. But I'll tell you honestly, if you're having a heart attack, call 911. If you're having a stroke, call 911. Well, time is of the essence. If it really is a heart attack, I mean, you, yes. time matters. Exactly. And this is key. So this is being wise. This is part of being a wise athlete. If you think you're having a cardiovascular event or a bike race, just stop the bike race, pack it in and go home. <laughs> it's your life. But basically, that's, that's one of the primary symptoms. But what I've noticed talking to my friend Les, he says there's times when I feel like his heart's jumping out of his body. It's going boom, 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 boom. I know a lot of athletes have felt this. And you have to understand what's going on, actually. And this is going to be hard to explain, but I'm going to do my best to explain it. There's two things that are going on in the heart that you must understand. The first thing is that there's this, what's called the AV node. It's, a, it's like a, call it a gatekeeper, between the atrium and the ventricle. And that's the reason why when the heart beats normally, the upper part of the heart, that, that, that signal goes across, and you get the atrial beat, which is the, the lub, then the electrical signal goes to the gatekeeper, the AV node. 
And for a split second, there's a pause. It's like a delay. And then it fires the, the ventricles. That's why it goes, it doesn't go lub dub. It goes lub, pause, dub. It's always lub dub. So the heart will beat correctly. It'll beat atrial first, followed by ventric ventricular beat second. Not at the same time. At the same time, the blood would push back into the atrium. This way, it'll go from atrium to vent ventricle and then out. The signal gets to the, the AV node and it pauses to allow time for the atrium to finish its kick before the ventricle kicks in. Now, unfortunately, if a signal propagates from the left side of the heart to the right side of the heart, it comes to the AV node and the AV node has a delay and it also has a secondary delay as well. So if a signal arrives like boom, it sends a ventricular signal. If a, a signal from the wrong direction arrives right after it, it won't let it pass through. It has a bit of a delay built in. And so what happens is that if signals are erratic in the upper part of the heart and it's just firing off these signals that are not regular timed, it won't pass the ventricles, which is a good thing. It won't cause ventricular fibrillation. That's, that's a plus. But then it also means the, vent the ventricle won't beat regularly. Because every now and then, You'll have these signals hitting it, impinging it at a regular, like, bup, 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 and then it fires, bup, 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 and it fires. So what's happening is that the ventricle will not fire regularly, so you get the irregular heartbeat. That's what people re recognize that. Or you'll have, what happens is that when it fires, it's like a boom, and it feels like your heart just went like boom, and it, like it's pounding out of your chest. So you'll feel these irregular heart rate, or you'll find very, very big heart, like a big boom. Like it's not like a normal heartbeat, it's like a really explosive heartbeat. I noticed it as a period of time. I would go like five seconds and no heartbeat. I thought I was dead, you know. So anyway, um, it would be characterized. It was a regular heart rate or like your heart's pounding in your chest. Those are the, the symptoms besides poor performance that you'll notice first off. Okay, Glenn. Well, thanks. Are there any other symptoms that uh, we should hear about? Well, primarily, like, like I said, most people won't recognize an AFib episode as an AFib episode. So I think the key things are irregular heartbeat, the feeling of your heart pounding out of your chest, perhaps the feeling that something's not right. You don't feel like you're not, I'll notice if I'm warming up, I don't feel right. Something doesn't feel right. I can't get my heart rate up or something's not right. It might just be when you wake up in the morning and you have something funny with your heart rate. I mean, is it as simple as it might happen for five seconds every few days? I mean, mm -hmm. as slight as that? Yeah, yeah. In fact, it is. That's the way it usually starts off. Um, one of the key things is that um, I have an Apple Watch, and Apple Watches monitor your heart rate all the time, and it will recognize, it will actually alert you, and it has told people they're having an AFib episode when they don't even know it. Because sometimes you won't feel it. It's very subtle in some people. Um, an athlete will notice it because they'll feel something's not right. I can't perform today. Right. But there are other things that important to understand. Even though it seems like sympathetic triggers cause the AFib, parasympathetic triggers can also trigger AFib as well, too. And that's why um, as the disease progresses, you start to get both parasympathetic and sympathetic triggers. For example, I might take out like a, like a nice hot shower and puts me into AFib, which is the opposite of what you'd expect. You know, some might think, well, a nice, warm, relaxing, you know, sit in the sauna and relax and you go into AFib. Or I'd wake up in the morning and I'd, I'd be in AFib, waking, waking up in AFib. So basically what I learned is that as the disease progresses, it starts to become more common. It starts to happen on both the sympathetic and the parasympathetic side. Of course, it evolves over time as the more it occurs, the more you're plowing that path. And so it starts occurring more frequently at different times, possibly even for different triggers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think it's important, you know, when I first developed the AFib, I thought, well, I got an atheist. It's just a problem with my heart. No big deal. Right. But I think this is besides understanding AFib is perhaps the most important part of this message we're getting forth today. The most important part is this. 
AFib in itself is not deadly. It's not the AFib that causes issues. It's what happens as a result of the AFib. For example, let me explain this. If you get this message and it gets through to you, it's fantastic. It's going to save your life down the road or save you from serious disability down the road. When the left atrium doesn't beat, it vibrates instead. The blood that goes into that comes in from the lungs into the left atrium would normally be pumped out into the left ventricle and then out to the body. When the blood doesn't pump properly, it turns out that a certain amount of that blood will pool in a portion, back portion of the heart. And when it pools, if it sits there too long and you're in AFib for too long, it will start to form a clot. When the heart starts beating normally, it pumps the clot out, which is good except for the fact that now you're going from, let's just take your, your left aorta, which they one and a half, about a one inch diameter vessel. So a small blood clot, not gonna ha- cause a problem, but then that large aorta branches towards the brain and it goes down towards the periphery. If it goes down to the periphery as it gets smaller and smaller vessels, eventually it gets into the smaller arteries of the leg and it causes a blood clot, which could be deep vein thrombosis, which could cause problems with the lower extremities. But worse, is as it goes into the, into the brain, the it pumps up and down, up to the brain, it now goes into your, your primary interior and exterior carotid. When it gets into your interior carotid, it goes into the, ve- the vessel of the brain itself, and the vessels get smaller and smaller and smaller. And at some point in time, that clot's going to find a point where it can't pass beyond. It's going to clog that blood vessel, and it's going to mean that blood flow to certain parts of the brain is going to be effective. Essentially, what you have is a stroke. Uh. So this is the key thing. In fact, I'd like you to get on here one of these days. He had the AFib and it progressed to a stroke. And I remember when I met him some years back, he wasn't walking. He had a cane. He could barely walk. And he was one of the top bike racers in the United States. So I would love for you to get on here and talk to him about the stroke and what happens, the side effects. As a warning to those athletes who are saying, ah, no big deal, no big deal. Well, it's a huge deal. AFib caused a huge stroke. AFib has caused the death of several cyclists I know of. So this is the serious part of, the, of this whole talk is that, yeah, AFib itself is not a big issue, but if you don't pay attention to it, it can lead to some serious issues, death and disability down the road. And I guess people could have strokes for all kinds of reasons, but if they have AFib, the risk of strokes is higher? Seven times higher. Wow. That's 700%. That's huge. Well, Glenn, what did you do to manage this for yourself? Funny you ask that question because... If you remember from our podcast so far, I did everything wrong. I didn't see a cardiologist. I ignored it. I kept on racing. I did all the things I shouldn't have done. Um, looking back, I could probably have minimized the damage. I was lucky that I didn't get a stroke. I was lucky that I didn't die, but I didn't do the things I should have done. Looking back, what I would have done differently is this. The first thing I would have done is find a really good cardiologist preferably an EP, electrophysiology cardiologist, who understands athletic AFib versus just the regular AFib because they can help that athlete with some of the issues. They also know that an athlete's goal is to have long-term health and they may not want to do surgery. They may want to choose other approaches because a lot of EP cardiologists, because since their, their only weapon is that nail, the surgery, that's what they keep pushing for. In fact, Dr. Cole kept pushing me when he gets the surgery. It took me four years to realize that it wasn't getting better and I needed surgery. So basically the first thing, is learning to identify what triggers your AFib. What is it that you did, and you may not even know, that caused the AFib in that particular day? And you'll start to see patterns. You'll start to think, well, whenever I have two espressos in a day, or whenever I really work really hard, or whenever I don't sleep well, whenever I have a lot of stress in my life, or a hard day at work, or a really hard race, or I'm dehydrated. So identify the triggers. If you know what the triggers are, you know how to minimize the triggers. The second thing is that if you have an episode of AFib, 
stop what you're doing. It's so simple. If you're in a bike race, just quit the race. You know, long-term, I mean, I didn't. I, and I'm sure I made it worse. But I know I made it worse. A bike race is not, it's just like a fun event designed to have fun, to you, competitive spirit. It's not designed to kill you. It's designed to have fun. So think, think smart about it. And then the other thing I started identifying was that I could minimize my, the episodes by specific supplements. And it was funny how I identified a particular family of supplements that made a difference. In particular, when we talked about inflammation, supplements that decrease inflammation will decrease the episodes of AFib. Calcium will increase it. Magnesium will decrease it. Zinc will decrease it. And then between Vic and I, we identified two other supplements that are in food, obviously, and it was B vitamins and iron. And it turns out, we don't know why, but it turns out that iron supplements and B vitamins can also minimize episodes. I was taking a very high dose, a high stress product, which is high in B vitamins. And Vic chose to eat red meat, which has lots of iron and lots of B vitamins in it. And he was able to decrease his symptoms by eating. So these are things that can control inflammation and increase your supplements, modify your diet so it's less inflammatory, um, eat foods that are less inflammatory or might be more calming to the immune system and the, therefore inflammation, therefore the AFib. And basically, improving diet overall is going to reduce symptoms of AFib. Like we needed another reason. Make sure you get your recovery. Yes. Sleep and recovery. So important. Good to know. I wonder if you could share, you've talked about your surgery, Glenn. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us what, what that was. You know, is that like all there is? I've heard of ablation. I don't know if that's what you had. What What is the interventions that you know about and your doctor has uh, given to you or offered to you? Good question, Joe. And it's, it's important we address this because we're not going to give medical advice here, but I am going to tell you some things about medicine. And I think it's important as an athlete to identify because when you go to your physician and he identifies you as having atrial fibrillation, he basically has two approaches. The first approach, which he always uses, which is medication. And if you understand there's four classes of medications for atrial fibrillation, none of them are good for you. In fact, when I first got enrolled in the, the FDA study that I was going to do surgery or, or it, was, it was basically surgery versus medication, I had to try some of the medications between the flecainide and the Adderall and all the different things I was taking, none of them worked for me, especially as an athlete. Because what they do is they poison, I'm not joking, they poison the conduction channels or they poison the heart or they poison the ability of the body to raise the heart rate. So essentially it's, it's poisoning, it's a, essentially it's, it's chemicals, drugs, medications that allow the heart not to function the way it's supposed to which to me makes no sense as an athlete. I take Sotolol, I try to climb a hill, my heart rate wouldn't elevate. So imagine your heart rate's at 100 beats per minute and you're trying to climb a hill and it stays at 100 beats per minute, you can't climb the hill. You obviously can't ride your bike and you obviously can't race. Right. Um, so that's the problem is that when you go see a physician for atrial fib, he'll wanna put you on a medication, which slows your heart rate down, poisons your conduction channels, poisons the heart or poisons something else so it doesn't work properly, you can't ride your bike. So that's the downside. After doing the, the FDA study type stuff, we like couldn't be in the study because I couldn't tolerate the medications. I couldn't enroll in the study. And it wasn't until sometime later that they informed me that his lab was going to allow me into the study as long as I signed a, an FDA compassionate use application. Compassionate use application is for those individuals whose um, risk of death is very high. I was at high risk of death from the atrial fibrillation. Oh. And so because that reason alone, I was allowed into the study after I signed about 40 pages of documents. 
I eventually had a surgery done, a type of surgery that was designed to ablate or block the channel, the signals coming from the left side of my heart. If you remember, you go back to the beginning, the normal conduction starts on the right side of the heart and you get these aberrant conductions starting on the left side of the heart. Well, the whole approach is to basically burn, ablate, or damage the cells that are causing the electrical excitability, thereby stopping the signals going from left side to right side. I see, and apparently it worked for you. I've heard that it's a bit hit and miss. Not necessarily, it depends. Um, it, it really comes down to several things. I am friends with a good surgeon who does these surgeries themselves. He talks about how they do it and how hard it is to do. Dr. Cole was really good. He was, he's an EP cardiologist. So what he would do, he would actually, he would stimulate on one side of the heart and then measure the other side. Then he'd burn and see if the signal got across again. So he actually could test with every time he'd do an ablation, he'd test. Did it stop the signal? Yes or no? If it didn't, hit it again. And he kept doing that. My surgery was nine hours long. My case was very different. It was a new surgery that was developed at the time. It was 2008. And rather than radio frequency ablation, which is basically like a, like burning it, they were freezing my heart. They froze with a, um, a device called a balloon, um, which would basically create a seal on the pulmonary vein, and then it would burn an annulus or a ring, essentially creating a circular scar, which would prevent activity from going from on the other side of the heart across the heart. That's the idea. Turns out that in principle, it makes sense. But in reality, it's very different from principle because the surface of which you're working with is not smooth, it's not round, it's irregular, and it required 16 burns or four burns per pulmonary vein. So that's why it took so many hours. And it's, it's quite a process. It's become, it has now been approved by the FDA back in 2010, I think it was. And out of the 20 people in the study, I had the most successful result out of anyone in the study. And I'm somewhat AFib-free. I have episodes now and then. They're very brief, very minor. And it, it's, it will continue to progress. That's just the common nature of the disease. Those electrical signals will find a way to get through, um, but just not to the same extent where it's continuous, nonstop. It's, I can, it usually goes away with it. The longest one I've had recently is maybe even 30 seconds. Is there anything else that you would want to share about your personal experience going through this? Anything that you learned? <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of lessons. I learned a lot of lessons in this, in this process. But like I said, the goal of this podcast is to give master athletes information they normally wouldn't have. Having crossed this pathway before, I know now that I can help many athletes who are going to develop AFib or who have developed AFib. There's no point in getting into an exercise program, developing AFib, and then having a stroke and being disabled for life. The point is to get into an exercise program, lose the weight, get into great shape, and live to be 100 years old in great shape, not living in a wheelchair in a nursing home someplace. That's the goal of this podcast, is using our knowledge of us and the athlete we bring on board to give our listening audience information to make them smarter, wiser, so they don't make the mistakes. And I'll be honest, I, we, I made a lot of mistakes. We all made mistakes. We pushed our bodies too hard. We didn't pay attention to the signs and symptoms. A lot of mistakes we made. And if, if you guys out there can learn from our mistakes, then we've, we've, we've accomplished our task, which is help you be wiser and smarter about your training programs. So you could have health and longevity well into your advanced ages. Any of you listening to this and you've had any of these symptoms or you've just been worried about it and you haven't spoken to a doctor, get the medical advice that you need so that you can be a strong athlete for a long time. The first day of the year, a uh, good time to make resolutions, uh, write down those, those resolutions, and then do it. And we hope to be able to help people on the way, show them some of the shortcuts and ways to get healthier faster. I want to wish everyone on the podcast a happy and a healthy 2021. 
stay tuned. We got some great things coming down the pike here in 2021. And I hope you all tune in and invite your friends to tune in as well, too. Well, let's wrap this up. Thank you very much. I hope that was helpful. Happy New Year to you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in to part two of our discussion with Dr. Glenn Winkle about his experience with AFib. Hopefully you also listened to part one and got the whole story. We are not done with the AFib topic. We will be back soon with more guests who have their own AFib stories that you will find interesting and helpful in your efforts to be a wise athlete. Be sure to subscribe to Wise Athletes so you can get notified of new episodes. We are currently working on podcasts related to bike fitting and the benefits of e-racing for older athletes. If you head over to wiseathletes.com, you can send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you are on social media and enjoyed this episode, please post about it. That would be a great help. Thanks again.